science tells us about the way we look for other people, other collaborators, is that we look for ourselves in them. And so what you need to do in terms of your LinkedIn profile is project the kind of collaborator you would like to collaborate with. So that means talking about who you'd like to work with. That means, so that could be role titles, for example, you know, so vice presidents of research you might talk about, or you might say who you've worked with in the past, if those previous collaborators have been people that you'd like to work with in the future. Welcome to episode 19 of Helium Podcast with Dr. Richard Heidsmans. He's a consultant and a coach for academia, and he runs a consulting group called Raven Consulting for Academia. So we'll get into this in a little bit in the episode, but just like for top athletes that need coaches, top minds also need coaches because it's difficult to run your research group and do all the things that you need to do to be successful in academia without some outside help sometimes. Richard joined the show today to provide that for us. In the show, you'll learn how to develop industry relationships for more well-rounded mentoring of students, more collaboration opportunities, and possible sponsorship of your work in the long run. And if you stick around to the end, Richard has written a book called Connect the Docs that specifically helps you connect your research with industry. And he's offering a free copy of that book to listeners of the Helium podcast. So listen for that offer at the end of this episode. Enjoy episode 19 with Richard Heismans. And don't worry, Christine will return next week in episode 20. All right, we're welcoming to the show today, Richard Heismans from Australia. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I could be here all the way from Australia. Yeah, definitely. I see your deck. I mean, the, the listeners can't see this, but I see your Christmas decorations in the background. It's awesome. I love it. And so we're excited to have her on the show today. But I say we, but Christine isn't here with me today. She's actually lost her voice from a conference. So I'm going to fly solo on this episode and hope I don't totally screw it up and Christine gets mad at me later. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. I'm hoping I don't stuff up either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, Richard, we had talked uh, some via Zoom uh, across the world uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had talked about some topics for the t- podcast because we had kind of running run across each other on the web. And one of our former guests, um, Oscar, had recommended that we talk to you. So I'm so glad that we connected. And I wanted to ask you, the first question was, how did you come to work with faculty as like a consultant in the consulting area? And then what motivated you to start doing this job? Yeah. So I started out doing a PhD uh, in biochemistry and molecular biology at Monash University. And what I found during that PhD time was that there were some people who worked really hard and got the result that they were after and other people who didn't work as hard and still got really good results. And there were people that you know, didn't really do much at all, or in my eyes, maybe the hours in the lab weren't that great, and and they got some outstanding results as well. And I, I came to realize that in some in some cases, in biomedical sciences anyway, you, what you do and how hard you work doesn't always relate to the results that you get. And so I made the decision early on in my PhD that going on and doing a postdoc and becoming a formalized researcher wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. Um, and so then I had sort of two years while I was completing my PhD, deciding what career path I would take. And I kind of fell into what I'm doing. So I, I got out of, I finished my PhD and then worked at the university, but I didn't work as an academic. I worked at Monash kind of in the professional services side of things, 
doing strategy and what you might call, if you're in industry, you might call business development. So helping build the research program of the university, but not actually being a researcher. And then I started to bump into more and more researchers, more and more PhD students who had exactly the same experiences as me, where they kind of came to me and said, you know, you left, why did you leave? Can you give me some advice? Or, you know, I'm thinking about leaving. Should I stay? Should I go? I've got a really good um, track record, but I don't know whether this is what I want to do. And so serendipitously, I fell into this space of providing advice to students and early career researchers around what it is that they should do, all the while helping researchers write grants and do their own strategy and build up their program of work. So, you know, establish new research institutes or restructure a a center or, or an institute or an entire faculty in some cases around a new approach, a new strategy, a new staff hires, whatever it might be. So that's how I got into it. Um, and then it's been, I guess, up and down since. Some Sometimes it's good and there's heaps of work out there and other times um, it's been difficult. But, but what I generally provide has been well-received. Nice, nice. It sounds like, you know, it's something that you're – that you fell into, but it's something that, that you're really suited for. You know, you, you didn't – you you kind of worked your way to it. You never really realized that it was a real career option, but it's something that kind of it kind of showed up on your doorstep, and then you said, "Wow, this is something that that I could do all the time and and really help people uh, accomplish their goals." Yeah, without a doubt. And the more I do it, the more I see that my role exists in industry, and I think in research or in academia, we haven't quite jumped on board the career coach as yet. Mm-hmm. And and I guess if I was telling someone in industry what I do and I said career coach, they would immediately align to it and say, yeah, we've got lots of those with us. But if you tell a, a researcher you've got a career coach, they think that you're, oh, why is that? Is your career going nowhere fast or do you want to improve you? you know, they, they think that something's wrong because you've got a career coach as opposed to, I don't know, if you use the analogy of elite sport, Elite sports people aren't performing badly, but they've all got coaches. And the reason they're probably doing so well and, and addressing the issues in their own performance is because they've got coaches and support staff. And I think in research, we need to head down that route if we want to be elite, if we want to improve our performance. Yeah, yeah. I love the analogy of the sports performance because you you go to like a basketball game and you see they have four trainers and they, they you know each of them are responsible for like a different stretch you know, and, and all these other things. And these, these are the top athletes in the world. And if you're talking about people that are the top minds in the world, they're, yes. they're, they're expected to kind of just jump into the deep end of the pool. And it's like, Hey, you can swim by yourself, right? Like, it's fine. Yeah. You, you know how to do research. And so I, I, I really like this idea of, and I think if Christine was here, she would say it was an alt academia career in a way, even though you're in the business world, you're yeah. helping academia, right? And so one of the things that, one of the reasons we wanted to invite you on the show is because back in episode 14, episode 14, we talked to these uh, ladies from the Beyond the Professoriate and they were talking about the idea of broadening PhD careers and celebrating mm-hmm. different PhD career pathways. And one, well, one, you're a great example of that. But two, you have this message and we wanted to kind of hear from you about the message that you that you've been talking about in terms of getting some clear ideas about how industry members can get involved in or, or excuse me how 
uh, mentors can get industry members involved in, in mentoring their mentees. So like as part of the mix of mentors, how do, uh, advisors kind of start to get into that top or get into that area. So they're, they're actually involving some other people besides themselves in the mentoring process. Yeah. Um, I think well, the, the advice that I give to my, my clients, the ones that I help out, if, you know, if you want to introduce a new industry member into your team, the easiest place to start is the grants and the work that you've already got. So, for example, you know, do you already have an industry partner and have you ever thought to invite them into your project, into your reference group? And certainly in Australia, that happens sometimes but not often. There's a project that I've involved in with, which is essentially co-designing the research with the research subjects, but in some, but that's a very new thing. And it's, it seems to me to be a very new thing across the industry. And, and the same with when we devise our industry projects, we ask industry whether we whether they are interested in the research that we have designed rather than asking industry, what research do you need or what problems do you have? And then designing a project that addresses those needs or answers those questions. So that would be the first point. The second point that I'd make is that students and, and even researchers themselves who have industry mentors, who have industry partners, are themselves more likely to, to breed more or to create industry-connected researchers themselves. So it's, it's, a, it's a positive net gain. It's a feedback loop where more industry partnerships leads to more industry partnerships. And, and you see that in, in Australia anyway, where there are research groups that when they have one industry partner, then, then they can more easily grow to two and more easily grow to three. So the hardest part is starting out and making the decision to go out and look for industry partners, particularly when you might think that there's none out there. And I guess in biomedical science where I come from, everyone wants to go after the big gorillas, you know, pharmaceutical companies and big ones at that and be partner with them. But my advice to them in terms of getting industry advice is that there's lots of different industries out there and and your your industry partner might not necessarily be the, the end user of your discovery, so the molecule or whatever that you're interested in, but it could be the methodological process that you use. It could be the techniques that you think are mundane and everyday, but would would you know five x their production facility or half their waste or whatever it might be. So I think we need to think laterally about how we think about industry partners and getting them involved. Yeah, I mean, I like what you say there because it. I work in uh, part of my job is to work with an engineering research center. And what we talk about is the value chain, right? Everybody along the value chain of whatever area you're working in is important, right? So sometimes yeah. people think, like you, like you said, you, you think of the big end user, right? Instead of, instead of all the people that are serving that big end user and the kinds of things that they can benefit from that's related to that product or that process or that problem. Um, but, you know, kind of coming back to what you said, I was, I was thinking about, okay, so it's, I think if you're a, a professor that's established and maybe you're part of a research center, there, there might be some apparent path. There might be some apparent pathways to kind of bring industry members into your sphere of influence, if you will. But what if you're, what, what advice would you have for a, a faculty member kind of just starting out? Like how would they, what steps should they take to, to try to nurture this process? I mean, given that it might take several years to build it up. Yeah. 
yeah. where, where do they start? Um, my, again, my advice, and I think I might have said this to you in our earlier conversation, would be to talk to your, if you're a new, a new postdoc, talk to the people that supervised you when you were starting and that were involved in early projects with you and ask them for introductions to their connections. And I think I might have told this story before that I said that as a piece of advice at a at a seminar once, and I got a sideways look from one of the more senior people in the room. And then she went on to say, I don't know that senior professors would be giving that stuff away to their students or, or their, you know, their recently acquired postdocs, which really, yeah, yeah, you're doing the you're doing the same look that I gave her. I mean, you know, this odd look like what you're not gonna help the other people that are in your group to proceed to <laughs> But I just Bible of the fittest. Yeah, correct. <laughs> and I, I, I thought that right then and there, that's the problem that we've got in, in our sector. But so I guess the first thing is ask others for, for advice and interaction if you've had um, connection with them. So in my specific exa- example, if I went and did a postdoc and I was looking for industry partners, my first port of call would be to go back to my PhD and back to my PhD supervisor and say, I'm, you know, I've continued the work on. Who did you work with? Can you make me some introductions? So if your supervisor is saying no to that, fair enough. Or if the answer is, excuse me, there are none, then to me, it's, it's obviously you've got to start looking. And I'm a real big advocate for the, for using LinkedIn to find industry partners. I know that the stats in Australia that LinkedIn is a little bit on the way down in terms of the social media rung. You know, we've got things like Instagram and Facebook. Snapchat all, you know, got far more usership than LinkedIn. But what I really like about the LinkedIn, it's all about industry. And so researchers can, I think, jump on there, put their profile up, and they've got to modify their language, but talk about their research. And you'll get people interested who are liking and sharing your posts that are not researchers. And you could then ask them, you know, I'm doing a project, you liked one of my posts relating to X, can we chat about it? And I think then it's starting those conversations. And um, someone used the analogy once of um, relationships and one-night stands. You know, you wouldn't go on a date and ask someone for their hand in marriage straight away. So I think we need to, as exactly as you said, this could take a few years to nurture. So just th- if you think about like a date, at least wait a few dates before you ask for for their hand in marriage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess you could kind of like. I guess if you put that, if you extended the analogy, it would be like if your old advisor sets you up, it can be like it, it can be like an arranged marriage. But it, otherwise, yeah, yeah. <laughs> otherwise you might have to wait. Yes. You have to yes, wait. Exactly a right. So in terms of LinkedIn, I mean, what tips do you have? Like, I mean, I know you said like just start posting about some of your work. I mean, in terms of like building the profile or trying to do searches for people that are relevant is it just is it just diligence or is, is are there strategies to to go about that um i guess diligence works definitely and i, I listen to a lot of this guy um gary vaynerchuk he talks a lot about being big on social media and he's not specific to um research if that makes sense he's just about you know getting big being an influencer as we're calling them now um, but it, for, for researchers who are probably not going to like his advice at all because it's just hang out on social media essentially, yeah. yeah. Um, for researchers, I think there is a good strategy and the strategy to follow is talk about what you're passionate about in your, in your research life and to the best that you can, keep it jargon-free. So because you, what you want is people that are on LinkedIn who are generally not going to immediately understand what it is that you do 
to at least be interested. Um, and certain fields and certain types of things are more interesting than others, um, without a doubt. I mean, at the moment, anything to do with neuroscience is massive. I'd often joke with my friends, what's neuroleadership? Does that imply that we weren't leading with our brain previously? Or <laughs> <laughs> I haven't um, even heard of neuroleadership. Oh, look at Google it next time you get a chance. It is huge. Oh, gosh. I'm so out of the loop. Um, and then there are things like, so what science tells us about the way we look for other people, other collaborators, is that we look for ourselves in them. And so what you need to do in terms of your LinkedIn profile is project the kind of collaborator you would like to collaborate with. So that means talking about who you'd like to work with. That means, so that could be role titles, for example, you know, so vice presidents of research you might talk about, or you might say who you've worked with in the past, if those previous collaborators have been people that you'd like to work with in the future, then the big thing is to start to connect with people. So when I, I encourage all the people that I work with, when you go to a conference, don't just put your Twitter up, make sure you put your LinkedIn up, tell people to connect with you, that it's a real way that they can connect. And then obviously, if you're going to tell people to connect on LinkedIn, check your LinkedIn profile relatively <laughs> frequently. Yeah, Don't just leave it and then be annoyed every time LinkedIn says you're... 25. Yeah, yeah it's like 25 unchecked uh, requests, connections yeah. requests, like Correct. six months later. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So you've got to be like, it's like you wouldn't let any, you wouldn't leave an email in your inbox that said, would you like to collaborate you wouldn't just leave it sitting there for months and months and months. So don't do the same on LinkedIn. And if you're not going to use it, like if you think, oh, I'm not using it, then close it down because all it does is creates frustration for people who would like to connect but haven't or haven't been able to get on t- in touch with you. Yeah. Breaking in here to talk about a special webinar that we're offering this week to help you land a faculty position. Some of the folks in our audience are senior graduate students, or very experienced postdocs, and they're trying to transition from being in that position to being in a faculty position so they can implement all the great stuff that they're hearing on Helium Podcast. So we decided to offer a webinar. So on Friday, February 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we're holding an hour-long webinar, totally free, where we go through the entire process of how to land your faculty position, all the way from clearing your schedule enough so that you can work on your faculty applications through the on-campus interview process. That's an hour long. It's going to be jam-packed with information. So bring your notebooks. You can register for that webinar at www.teamhelium.co slash webinar. Again, that webinar is Friday, February 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern. And the registration address is www.teamhelium.co slash webinar. We hope to see you there. We believe this will be very helpful for those in our audience who are looking to make that transition so that by this time next year, they have a faculty position where they can grow their research and grow their research group. Now let's get back to our episode with Richard Heismans. That's, That's interesting you mentioned Gary Vanderchuk because one of the reasons why we started this podcast is that there's so much wisdom, I think, out there in the entrepreneurial small business space that professors, right? They're the, these academics, they're running their own small businesses. And yes. although I don't recommend them taking on the full force of Gary Vanderchuk's advice, there are some nuggets. There are some nuggets in what oh, he says. Yeah. 
that they could certainly adapt to the academic space because I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's, it's a, it's a rapidly changing world and to remain relevant, even in the research space means that you need to, you need to play by different rules and just having a website up is probably not going to do it anymore. Like a good website is great. A good website is great, right? If people click and they want to find more information about you and they don't necessarily want to contact you directly, that's a great way to broadcast yourself out to the world, but it's not enough anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is all part of this idea of social proof. You know, when we buy, we want social proof that the person exists, that they're good, etc. And the more points that they can get of social proof, the more likely it is that they'll collaborate with us. So there's something that says um, around 10 bits of content are consumed before someone who wants to buy or work with you reaches out to you. And at that point, they're basically 90% of the way to a saying yes. So I often say that again to the people that I coach, at that point when you receive the call that someone says, can we work together, it's yours to now stuff up. <laughs> the reason yeah. that they'll say no afterwards or that you, it'll end up not working out is because something changed based on what they saw versus what they got. And so we need to make sure that what they see is congruent with us. So that means, you know, obviously you need to have your social media representing you or your web presence being you, et cetera. Um, and bringing it back a bit to, you know, the start of this discussion about mentors and why non-academic mentors are important is because exactly what we've just said, they open you up to a whole range of things that are happening outside academia that could be beneficial to academia. You know, you talked about academia and, and running a small, uh, running a research group being running like a small business. And I've posted a lot about that as well. You know, you've got to run your own budget. No one does it for you. You've got to put your own website together. You've got to manage your own social media. Hiring and firing staff is entirely up to you. I mean, the university might be there, but all they're doing is, you know, putting a nice box around it. You know, they're not, they're not telling you you're overspending. They're just telling you your, your, your budget's in the red. They're not telling you stuff are good or bad. They're just telling you you haven't produced enough grants or enough publications this year. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're measuring your metrics, and you have a lot of internal yeah. metrics that that feed into that, like the the external yeah. metrics that they're looking at. Well, I mean, and also just thinking about going. I, I'm glad you brought it back to the mentoring space because I was actually thinking in terms of. I, I think two last things I want to cover is one is the benefit for the mentees, right? So have you seen like w- these students that are being mentored by industry members? Have you seen like success stories, not only just for the advisor in terms of like, you know, bringing more research dollars into the, into their lab and more interaction with industry and solving problems, but rather like, the benefits for the students. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about that, but I, I wonder if you have maybe a more specific case where you, you could point to. Yeah. So um, what I've seen happen more regularly is that you get these, the coexistence and the co-location of research groups and industry partners at a university site, which in Australia anyway is somewhat unique, but because of the close relationships between the supervisor, the student, and the industry partner, everyone gets comfortable through that process, comfortable enough that the industry partner thinks it's good value to co-locate at a university, whereas previously they might have said, no, 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 our current digs are fine. 
So that has been really good, and that's good for the university as well because from in, an, in Australia anyway, they're now paying rent and they're paying commercial rates of rent where otherwise you know, you'd charge research rent. And in Australia, research rent is often you know 80% of cost rather than 120% of cost. Um, so that's useful then for everyone. And again, in Australia, we don't have a lot of this where you bounce between, say, academic life and industry life. I'd really like to see a lot more of that. And for the students and the people that I've mentored, you can see there's a lot more people doing making that transition from being a PhD student then going and developing their idea with an industry partner and then becoming you know, a fully-fledged industry professional, as it were, but then when they come back, they're rounding their career and coming back into academia and saying, I'm going to bring my how I took my academic training, applied it to industry, and now come and train PhD students to think in a different way. So you, that loop is being closed, as it were. Um, again, that doesn't happen a lot in Australia. And these, and that's happening in one, the first example about the co-location of labs, that's happening at a university called La Trobe University, uh, in Victoria and the stuff where the, the academics are coming back after having done an industry stint and coming back in as academics, that's happening at, at Monash University, that example that I'm thinking of. So it's happening at multiple universities and I think it'll happen more and more and more as we get these non-academic mentors coming through. Uh, the final example is a much bigger program that I've not been involved in, but uh, one of the major banks in Australia has teed up with a, a, um, a scientific precinct. So in, in Melbourne, there's an area called Parkville. The, the precinct is called the Parkville Precinct. Unsurprisingly, they teamed up, I think it's with um, ANZ or Westpac. I probably should get that right. But So executives from this big bank and they're one of our top four banks are teaming up with senior researchers at these institutes. So these are professors or people that are on fellowships and they uh, have a, a formal mentoring relationship. And so the banks are learning about research and the importance of data and the you know, thoroughness around research. And the researchers are learning about the importance of good management and good team membership and you know, being good leaders and, and what industry wants. And that's been really valuable for the people involved in that. That sounds like a that sounds like an excellent program. I haven't heard of anything similar to that in the U.S. I, a bank getting involved in a in a university, I, you, usually yeah. a, like in totally different <laughs> planet. But that's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, correct. It is cool. Well, I mean, unless you have any parting advice, I mean, that's I think that's really great. I think there's some great action items for you know early career faculty there trying to think about how they'll get their students involved in more involved with industry mentors, and you know, of course, there's the benefit that accrues to them as well as as they as they graduate those folks and either they go out to academia, they go out into industry, and they continue to support the research group. Um, are, any final thoughts on that on that topic, or something that we didn't cover? No, no I think it's all. I, I think we covered a lot of it well. I, uh, my final parting piece of advice would be to go and take action. So, if you think you've listened to this or any of Matt's podcasts and you think he's got some good advice, go out and take action from that as soon as you can. Because those people that do are the ones that go and make the difference. If you wait to take action, someone will get out in front of you, and you'll be second or third rather than first. So take action yeah you got to be the number one hit on linkedin for a a certain topic right yeah exactly right exactly right those who are there first claim the ground that's it 
So Richard, where can people go to find out more about you if they're, if they're interested in finding out more about you? So uh, I haven't tried a Google search outside Australia, but if you do a Google search inside Australia, Dr. Richard Heisman's, you'll find me on the front page of Google. Uh, so H-U-Y-S. It works. I can confirm it. Yeah, sorry. I can confirm it works outside of Australia. At least in the United States, it works. I found cool. you that way. So Yeah, awesome. Uh, so yeah, H-U-Y-S-M-A-N-S for my last name there. Uh, but of course, I wouldn't be a good preacher of LinkedIn if I wasn't on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. Uh, Instagram as well, Dr. Richard Heisman's Facebook. I run a, a Facebook group called uh, Beyond Your PhD. So find me there. But I'm also on Facebook as, a, as an individual. Um, but yeah, Google's your friend when it comes to finding me, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today or joining me today. Sorry, I'm so used to saying us, but uh, really appreciate it, Richard. And thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners, we're doing a bit of time traveling today. We're going about two months into the future from when we recorded this episode with Richard. And actually, it's because Richard has an offer for us. He's written a book which is coming out very soon. And it's called Connect the Docs. And I wanted to invite Richard back on the podcast to explain what he wanted to offer the Helium Podcast listeners. So go ahead, Richard. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, like you said, wrote a book, Connect the Docs. So it's, I'm a dad, so couldn't resist the opportunity to put a bit of a pun in there. Uh, and it's all about as PhD graduates, as researchers, getting industry partners. So we all know that that's potentially hard to do and we might not know where to start or how to do it. And I'm hopeful that this book will help um, reveal some of the opportunities that might be there for you or perhaps open your eyes to a, a way of doing it that you previously previously hadn't. It's one of a trilogy that I hope to write, <laughs> um, consisting <laughs> continuing with the dad joke theme uh, after Connect the Docs will come Doctor Doc, how to work other researchers, and then following on from that will be um, Join the Docs, how to, as an industry person, work with uh, researchers at a university. And uh, as Matt said, I've got an offer for you also. If you reach out to me and say you heard me on the podcast, happy to send you a free copy of the book um, via your preferred method. It'll come out as an ebook or as a hard copy book. Uh, let me know what you're after and I'll be more than happy to send you a free copy. Thank you, Richard. That's very generous of you. I think that's going to be very exciting for some of our listeners. I know that they're interested in connecting with industry. So it'll, it's also very relevant to this episode. So we'll obviously link to all of that stuff in the show notes. And uh, thank you for coming back on yep. uh, briefly and explaining. You're welcome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you write your next book, we'll invite you back on the show and, and, and uh, yeah, I'd definitely love to. And we can talk about that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Working with other researchers. I know how hard that can be too. Yeah. I work <laughs> with other researchers. It's, it can be a, a fun <laughs> job. It's a job. It's a yes. service. It's a service industry for sure. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Thanks for having me back. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening to episode 19 of Helium Podcasts with Richard Heismans. Richard had a lot of great stuff to share about how faculty can get their students involved with industry mentors and how that will eventually benefit the faculty in terms of having industry collaborators and support. He also talked a lot about how faculty members, especially early career researchers, can use LinkedIn to help get the word out about their research and how 
you know, that is a years long process to get industry members involved in your research. But once you get one industry member, it's a lot easier to get your second industry member involved in terms of sponsoring your work. So it's a long road, but it's a road that can pay off very nicely. Episode 19, the show notes can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 19. Please subscribe to the show if you don't want to miss the next episode. We've got a great series of episodes coming up. The next one is actually with a postdoc and a graduate student that contacted us about being on the show. And we're going to talk about strategies for planning out your conferences over the course of the year and also pre-planning your conferences before you attend. So who you should email, how you should set up your schedule, how you should plan your conference and have a real intention to what you're doing when you show up so that you have the most successful time when you're traveling. The music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake and he can be found at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by Zach Hendren and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Have a wonderful day. We really appreciate you as a listener. Take care. Until next time, may your impact be greater than your impact factor.